Buddhism. Seems to be a mystery surrounding Buddhism. I mean, do Buddhists worship Buddha? What do they believe? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Dr. Pat Zucherin. We're going to examine that today with an expert in this area. That's what this show is all about. We examine cultural and spiritual topics, try to undergird what we do with good reason and evidence for why we believe what we believe. And you can check some of our resources out, by the way, at evidenceandanswers.org. There we have resources from atheism to Zen Buddhism and many other things, including Pat's articles. You can download past shows, Pat's interviews with experts, and and many other things when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. So check that out today. Pat, another good guest today. We're holding his book right in our hands, and we're going to talk about Buddhism. And Pat, last time we talked about how many celebrities seem to embrace Buddhism and that there's a real appeal there. If you didn't hear the first show with Dr. Netlin, go to evidenceandanswers.org and you can download it there. Pat? Yes, you know, Kevin, I was recently in Nepal and I was amazed that when I was in Nepal, how many Westerners there were there from America and Europe and South America, not only seeking the adventures of hiking up in the Himalayas, but spiritual enlightenment. Mm. Many of them were looking towards the East, towards Buddhism for some kind of spiritual fulfillment. I got into many spiritual conversations out there. Uh, this appears to be a very attractive religion to the West. And therefore, it's important for us to understand Buddhism and its teachings and its influence. And to help us do that is Dr. Harold Netlin, Associate Professor of Philosophy of Religion and Intercultural Studies at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. He is co-author of a great book, Buddhism, A Christian Exploration and Appraisal. And he has also lived in Asia, in cultures where uh, Buddhism is the dominant religion of that culture. So he has a lot of not only understanding of Buddhism, he's also lived in those cultures. And so we're happy to have him back with us. Uh, Dr. Netlin, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. It's good to be with you. Well, Dr. Netlin, we're talking briefly about some of the basics of Buddhism and there are just so many schools of Buddhism. It's, it's hard to give a summary of what they all believe, isn't it? Well, it's very hard, and uh, especially if you compare the earlier Indian Buddhism or what you find in Sri Lanka today or Thailand today with what you find in uh, Korea or Japan, uh, and then especially with what you find here in the United States or in uh, Great Britain or Germany. They're, they're really quite diverse. Well, tell us, how did that diversity develop? Well, Buddhism has always been a uh, missionary religion, and it's interesting, there's even a kind of great commission that the Buddha is said to have given to his monks to send them out into the world and to uh, work to eliminate suffering. And uh, Buddhism moved along with the trade routes, um, the Silk Road into Central and then North and East uh, Asia. And when it did so, it tended to adopt and adapt many of the local cultural and religious traditions. Uh, there, there's a um, interesting comparison with Christianity here because Christianity has moved throughout the world. It's a worldwide religion, but for the most part, it's been much more careful about simply adopting the local religious traditions and uh, making them part of it. Uh, Buddhism did that, and so when it got into China, it encountered a uh, culture 
and religions that were really quite different from India. Uh, rebirth, for example, wasn't part of the accepted uh, framework in China. This was a new concept, and the Chinese were very much influenced by uh, Confucianism. So the family relationships were very important. Well, the Buddhist monks who came in were celibate. They didn't marry, and you can imagine this would uh, cause them some suspicion. So as Buddhism moved throughout these countries into Korea and then Japan, uh, it accepted and adopted many of the local traditions and cultures, and in so doing, then it changed. Uh, and then part of it is also simply, we talked uh, last time about the difference between Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism developed many new sacred texts, and uh, so especially through China, you have the uh, Pure Land tradition becoming more significant, and then you move into Japan, you have the Japanese Buddhist Nichiren, uh, who then becomes the founder of movements uh, such as, much, much later, uh, the Soka Gakkai movement, which is uh, increasingly popular here in the West. So it's that accommodation which has really resulted in so much of the diversity among the different uh, schools and traditions. I would rather suspect, Dr. Netland, that Americanized or Westernized Buddhism is not very recognizable as far as early Buddhism and even uh, purer forms of it. We, we tend to probably have our own version of it, a smorgasbord. And some of these celebrities who embrace Buddhism live exorbitant lifestyles and certainly don't uh, live any kind of middle path, it doesn't seem. Have you found that? Uh, there's certainly that. Um, to be fair, there are many converts to Buddhism who um, study the ancient languages. Uh, they do really want to uh, become a part of the tradition, and they take it very, very seriously. So you, I don't think we can dismiss uh, all of it as simply kind of Western watering down, or as it's sometimes put, you know, Zen light. But, but there is some of that over here. And, uh, for example, again, just to take an extreme example, enlightenment in the Zen tradition in Japan is something that, uh, you know, relatively few people will attain, and only after long, arduous, uh, rigorous meditation and training of the psychic, uh, physical body and so on. Uh, in the West, you sometimes get the feeling that this is something you can do over a long weekend if you just plan your schedule right and do it correctly. You go to a few uh, seminars. There is, kind, there is that kind of trivializing, uh, but again, there are many in the West who take it very, very seriously and subject themselves to the classical trainings, so you don't want to overgeneralize here. Now, you said last week that in Buddhism there's not a belief in God. Yet, in many of the temples I go to, it appears that they are worshiping Buddha or a Buddha. Is that yeah. correct, or what are we seeing there? Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, you, with any religion, you have to uh, distinguish what we could call the, uh, the high religion, the uh, orthodox tradition, the more philosophical or theological tradition, and then what's often called uh, folk religion. And this would be the religion of the ordinary person. Oftentimes they don't know too much about the actual teachings. And typically, and you find this throughout Asia, the folk religion tends to be fairly syncretistic. You bring in many different traditions and elements. And that's what you find certainly here with uh, Buddhism. Technically, you do not worship the Buddha in Buddhism. 
you do not pray to the Buddha. Mahayana Buddhism has many, many, many Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, not just Gautama the Buddha, but uh, hundreds and hundreds of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Strictly speaking, you don't worship them or you don't pray to them. You, can, you meditate upon them. But then again, on the folk level, the average person, and especially in perhaps less literate environments, uh, I think it's fair to say that they do worship the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, and they do pray to the Buddhas and uh, the Bodhisattvas for success. Dr. Netland, there seems to be a comparison, contrast with Christianity here in, in Buddhism. Christianity depends on who Jesus Christ is, who he claimed to be, included with what he taught, but that doesn't seem to be the case in Buddhism. It doesn't matter who Buddha was. What matters is what his philosophy or what he taught. In Christianity, it makes a great deal of difference who died on the cross and who was raised from the dead. And in the case of Buddhism, it's really not all that significant whether Gautama, the historical Gautama, was the one who attained enlightenment or not. That's a fundamental difference, and it reflects a difference in how the two religions approach history. In the case of Christianity, history is extremely important. As uh, Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, then we're kidding ourselves. The game is up. There's no point in even pretending uh, to believe this stuff. It all stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. You don't have that same approach to history in Buddhism. Paul Tillich went to uh, Japan in 1960 and dialogued with some Buddhists and asked them the question whether it would really matter to them as Buddhists if historians could conclusively show that Gautama, in fact, had never lived. Would that make any difference to them as Buddhists? Uh, and their response was no, it wouldn't. Uh, the Dharma, the teaching of Buddhism, is eternal, and it would be true whether or not Gautama happened uh, to have lived. There are many Buddhas before him. There will be many Buddhas after him. So there's a kind of contingent relationship between the teaching in Buddhism and the historical person. You know, Dr. Nettleman, I had a question about sin. You know, in Christianity, we all know that we've fallen short of God's perfect law, and we receive forgiveness through the death of Jesus Christ. It's a gift of grace that has been given unto us that we receive. In Buddhism, there's a sense we have, you know, missed the straight and narrow path. Yet how do they, is there a concept of sin, and how do they receive forgiveness for their shortcomings? Sin is a word, the English word sin is, is a word that I think really has very strong Judeo-Christian overtones. Uh, so I'm not comfortable using the word sin with respect to uh, Buddhism. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, sin is always sin against a holy and a righteous God. So sin is not just, you know, moral failure. Anybody who is aware of their own shortcomings hopefully will acknowledge that uh, they have moral failures and we're not as good as we would like to be and we wish that we were. But sin is much stronger than that. Sin is a, is a term that refers to uh, moral failure, but also to human rebellion against God and human rejection of what we know to be right and true about God. And so it's a much deeper and richer notion. If there is no concept of a righteous God, then it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to speak about sin. Now, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, you don't have the holy, righteous creator God. 
So I don't think it makes sense to speak about sin. But you do have a very keen and very acute sense of uh, moral failure and moral problems. Again, the Buddhist teachings tend to be very high on moral conduct, what we should do, what we should not do. Uh, Early Buddhism condemned any taking of life, any taking of life at all, killing, was condemned. Now, obviously not all Buddhist communities have lived up to that, but, but it's a very high ethical ideal. And some of the later Buddhists, and I'm thinking of uh, the Japanese Buddhist uh, Shinran in particular, were really very eloquent when they talked about their own sense of moral failure and how their intentions and their thoughts were evil. But again, this is, this is not quite the same thing as sin because there's not a holy and a righteous God against whom we have sinned. And then correspondingly, you don't have the possibility of forgiveness from a holy, merciful, and righteous God. So that would be another difference there. In most of Buddhism, you're, you're very much on your own with the help of some of the bodhisattvas to work this out on your own. And uh, so in that sense, much of Buddhism has been characterized as a kind of self-help or self-effort religion. You know, um, Dr. Netlin, I don't see a lot of Buddhist hospitals, you know, or, or things like that. A lot of the things in science and medicine were started by those from the theistic worldview. Why is that? I think historically, you can argue that Christian theism, the Christian church and Christian missions have been very instrumental in starting schools, orphanages, hospitals, working to eliminate practices like uh, suti or uh, widow burning in India or child prostitution, uh, things like that. You know, the, the track record of the Christian church is certainly not perfect. There, there's a lot that we need to uh, be profoundly sorry about. Uh, but I think it is fair to say that uh, the Christian church has a strong record in uh, meeting these social needs and uh, working for social justice in many areas. After the 19th century, you begin to see much more of this in uh, India, in the Hindu context, and uh, in Japan, and elsewhere in the Buddhist context. So it it is true that uh, you have Buddhist uh, charity organizations and Buddhist um, uh, efforts to alleviate poverty and hunger and and so on. But uh, my sense is this is a much more recent thing. And especially as uh, Buddhism has come to the West now, you find a strong emphasis upon social justice. But this, I think, is, from the way I look at it, this is because of the Western influence on Buddhism. It doesn't arise from within Buddhism itself so much. At least that hasn't been the case for much of its history. It's a very controversial subject. And you'll get uh, very strong feelings on, on all sides of the issue there. But that's, that's how I read the issue. I think we would have to acknowledge that uh, certainly Buddhists today are, are very active in uh, movements for social justice and uh, alleviating poverty and, and so on. Yeah, I saw Buddhism as really kind of a, uh, lack of a better term, kind of a self-centered kind of religion. It's my quest for enlightenment. And really, if someone is sick or comes into the world crippled or something, well, that's, you know, part of the uh, bad karma from their previous existence, and they just simply have to live that out. Yeah, I mean, you know, you might be interfering with someone's karma or karmic development if you help them 
or alleviate their suffering and, and so on. I mean, that would kind of put a damper on any kind of uh, charity outreach. You do have this paradox, and um, I think in India you see it historically in the past, prior to the 19th century, uh, much stronger, uh, a kind of um, fatalism or even passivity in the face of karma. And we are what we are today because of the accumulated karmic effects of many, many past lives. And so, strictly speaking, it's not unjust that someone finds himself or herself in a very poor or, from our perspective, tragic set of circumstances. At the same time, there are in the Hindu texts and uh, in, uh, in, in Hindu practice, uh, calls for compassion and calls to reach out and meet the needs of others. And you find the same thing with Buddhism. With Buddhism, even more so, there's a strong emphasis upon compassion. And uh, right from the beginning, again, Gautama was deeply, deeply bothered by suffering. And uh, so his whole, the whole religious quest is an attempt to try and eliminate suffering. And the theme of compassion, uh, compassion for others, compassion... Uh, for anything that is suffering is a very, very strong one in Buddhism. It's harder to see the basis ontologically for that compassion, I think, uh, but, it, but it's clearly there. And then as you get into Mahayana Buddhism, you have the image of the Bodhisattva who becomes very, very prominent, and the Bodhisattva is a, uh, a being that has uh, earned the right or attained uh, coming to the very door of enlightenment, but postpones entering enlightenment for the sake of helping others who haven't gotten that far yet to uh, walk the path. So, yes, the karma, the uh, determinism, uh, the fact that we are what we are because of our past actions and dispositions, that's all there. And then paradoxically, you've also got this strong emphasis on compassion, and sometimes it's hard to put the two together. You know, Dr. Netland, you know, as a Christian, as someone who really, uh, as someone who grew up in a Buddhist culture and a Buddhist family, and, and we all here in the studio and you yourself just love Buddhists, what is the best way to really effectively dialogue with a Buddhist and share with him about the love of Jesus Christ? Yes, um... You know, Buddhism as a system, as a religion, is interesting to study. Um, for those who are philosophically inclined, it's, it's got a rich teaching and heritage. But we always need to remember, uh, we're dealing with people here. We're dealing with people. And uh, as a Christian, my concern is that everybody uh, be given the opportunity to understand the teaching of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and uh, then to respond uh, in faith to what Jesus has said. Um, a couple of very quick short things. If the Buddhist is from an Asian tradition, uh, perhaps an immigrant either living in Asia or an immigrant from uh, Vietnam or Thailand, Japan, uh, China, etc., then you have the whole set of cultural issues you have to deal with. And in my own experience, probably the cultural issues are more important than the strict teachings of Buddhism themselves. And uh, putting it all down in a nutshell, the question is going to be, can I really be a Thai, Vietnamese, Chinese, or Japanese 
and also be a follower of Jesus or a Christian. If I become a follower of Jesus, do I somehow renounce my own ethnicity, culture, everything that has gone to make me who I am? And I think for many Asians, that's really the central issue. Now, if you're dealing with um, non-immigrant communities in the West here, perhaps Caucasians, African Americans, or others, who are converting to Buddhism, then you have a different set of dynamics. And I think oftentimes they are reacting against Western culture and Christianity. And uh, it's interesting that uh, two of the largest groups of converts to Buddhism today are very conservative Christians and very conservative Jews. Um, And so I think clearly there's something going on here as people decide that classical institutional Christianity simply doesn't have the answers and they're looking for an alternative. And so I would want to get to know Buddhists as people. Where are they coming from? Uh, How do they understand what it means for them to be Buddhist? And if they're reacting against uh, the West or Christianity somehow, why is that? Is it a misunderstanding? Do they really understand what Jesus has to offer and so on. But there's no no easy answer here, no silver bullet. It takes time. Yes, you know, one of the things uh, I found difficult in witnessing to Buddhists, but also Hindus, is when you share with them about Christ, often they'll receive Christ, and and you think, well, we have another brother in the Lord. But simply what they've done is they've added Christ uh, to their Buddhism. And so you'll find many that say, well, I'm a Buddhist Christian. You know, uh, I've known cases in Hawaii uh, personal friends of mine who were deacons in churches, but when they died, they wanted a Buddhist funeral. You know, yeah. so it, they can be quite inclusive. How do you oh, avoid absolutely. that? Yes, yes. No, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, there's high respect for Jesus. Many Buddhists have enormous respect for Jesus. Uh, they like the teachings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, so on. Uh, the problem, of course, becomes. Uh, If you're going to accept the New Testament Jesus, you're accepting not just a great moral teacher. uh, You're accepting a particular understanding of God, the Creator, God becoming a human being in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and then living a sinless life and taking upon himself the sin of all human beings on the cross, and then raised, being raised victorious uh, from the from the grave uh, three days later. It's 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 a very um, interwoven uh, composite uh, package. Uh, that's the New Testament picture of Jesus. And oftentimes, when people see that, that's where the stumbling block is. Uh, in Japan, our experience it takes a long time, a long time for most people to come to the point where they really understand what the New Testament is saying about Jesus, and then by God's grace they're willing to say, I accept it, I accept it. So we have to be patient, we have to be patient. Yes, you know, and uh, in my experience, Buddhists are some of the best uh, people to have a spiritual dialogue with. I've had some rich uh, spiritual dialogue with Buddhists. You know, in our last minute here together, Dr. Netland, our show is heard in Hawaii and the West Coast and throughout Asia. And so certainly there will be some Buddhists listening to this show. 
in, in one minute, is there a message that you would like to give uh, to the Buddhists who are listening out there? Oh, absolutely. And uh, I love Asia. I was born in Japan. I've lived much of my adult life in Japan. And I have enormous respect for uh, Gautama and for Buddhism. I think Gautama was a uh, brilliant, brilliant thinker. My, my challenge would simply be uh, read carefully what the New Testament has to say about Jesus. Don't interpret Jesus as a Buddhist. Look at him as a first century Jewish male in a very theistic context, and then ask yourself whether or not what the New Testament has to say about this Jesus of Nazareth could possibly be true. Outstanding. We've been talking with Dr. Harold Netland. He is a professor of philosophy of religion and intercultural studies at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. He's co-author of a great book here on Buddhism, Buddhism, A Christian Exploration and Appraisal, along with uh, Keith Yandel. And Dr. Nettlin has also written other great books, Dissonant Voices, a book on religious pluralism, just an outstanding book. So, Dr. Nettlin, thank you for being on the show, and thanks for uh, such great information and just your great heart to reach people for Christ. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for being with us on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zugarin. We hope you got some good information, and we have more at evidenceandanswers.org. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism is available free and for purchase. And by the way, when you purchase our resources at evidenceandanswers.org, you keep this show on this station and help us to expand. And you may also want to partner with us. Just click the Donate button on our front page. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.